Welcome to episode 18 of the How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast. I'm your host, Emily White. Today, I am so thrilled to have artist Julia Nunes on the podcast. Welcome, Julia. Thank you, Emily. Good to be talking with you again. And you're so much more than an artist, that's for sure. I I could have said entrepreneur, yogi, meditator. (laughs) Thank you. Lots of other things. Um, But today's episode is called Merch Recon. Um, You, you know, before I talk about merch for a second, you definitely define building a sustainable music career. So after we talk about merch, I'm going to take you through your career through the lens of the book, and hopefully we can share um, some of the great things that you've done and that you're doing with the audience. Sick. Sounds great. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. So merch. I mean, let's just, you know, start really basic yet kind of emotional. Like what is, what does merch mean to you? Oh, um, just anything that you sell that is physical instead of like the, the kind of less, uh, physical art Right. I get really emotional about merch. That's probably why like I I, I mentioned emotion. But um, I mean, what do you think about when you're, you know, kind of in that mode, like getting ready for a tour or, um, you know, setting up an album, which is a very, which is a long process for you in a good way. Um, yeah. Take us inside your mindset a little bit, like when you're putting a release together and how merch may or may not factor into that. Yeah, um, I really think that merch is something really special to have between an artist and fans. Like being on the fan side, there's certain artists that like I've had merch that I I still wear like 10 years after I bought it. (laughs) So um, I, I put a lot of thought into it when I'm selling it to my fans and my biggest criteria is like would I wear it do I want it (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because I think I have just you know so much in common with my fans Uh, like if they like my art musically then I think they would also like my art um, in terms of like styling clothes or um, you know merch isn't just clothes but yeah just any any aesthetical thing that I enjoy it seems like I really tend to hit the mark with my fans. Like there's an understanding there that, that always feels pretty on. Absolutely. And you said something really interesting um, as far as being a fan yourself, that you have merged from like 10 years ago. And, and to me, that speaks to two things. One, it, it was awesome stuff. You know, like you said, something you would want to wear, even though someone else designed it. But two, it was quality if it's mm-hmm. still around 10 years later, which I think is really important as well. Yeah, quality is something that that really makes me like, that probably takes the longest out of anything. Like the designing is kind of easy because I'm simple. Like I like simple styles. Um, but the quality, like, I think that it's kind of wild how different a a white t-shirt can be brand to brand, Mm -hmm. just like the shape of the neck, the thickness of the fabric, the way the fabric feels like 
that stuff is as important when it comes to merch as it is when you're just like buying your regular wardrobe if you want people to actually wear it. Absolutely. And I, I'm only thinking of this now, but I tour managed the Dresden Dolls, I mean, for years, but we'll just throw 2005 out there. <laughs> I have quite a few pairs of cotton Dresden Dolls undies that are in amazing shape that are clearly over 15 years old. And I was pretty good about doing laundry on the road, but like when you're touring like all year, sometimes you just have to grab a pair of new undies from the merch table. (laughs) And so 15 years later, like, so shout out to JSR merchandising in New Hampshire for your undies. I mean, honestly, like they are in top shape. There's no reason for me to take that to the textile recycling at the farmer's market by any means. So yeah, quality is super important, but take me back to the beginning. I mean, you know, like I'm sure you were self-fulfilling for a long time and you still do a lot of self-fulfillment through Kickstarter and stuff, which we'll get into. Um, But yeah, I mean, do you remember like when you, like the first merch item you made or thought of or anything? Yeah. uh, It was a shirt that a fan designed. Um, People were basically like asking repeatedly if I would make t-shirts because I had some shows coming up and they were just like are you gonna have shirts are you gonna have cds and I was like no (laughs) and I was really like um you know I've had to like work through this in so many areas of life which I think like a lot of artists come up against which is like you know who who do I think I am like why what makes me think a shirt with my face on it or my name on it is like worth making like that's that's narcissistic or that's like self-impressed and I don't want to come off that way um so I really resisted it at first and then um and then I I caved in I was like if you guys design it then I'll I'll print one and I just got like thousands of submissions and um there's this really old picture of one of my first shows with me and like five fans all wearing my t-shirts and they also have my lyrics sharpied on their foreheads and arms <laughs> and, and um you know that's probably over 10 years ago and I know that some of those kids are still around listening to the music and buying the merch that I make now which is like you know I I'm just so flabbergasted by like the design of that shirt was um a doodle basically like a a, a ukulele that had wings <laughs> <laughs> and um you know the stuff i make now musically and merch wise is just like it's so different and we've all grown to have aligning styles still years later Um, That's really incredible about getting the fans involved with the merch design. Um, For anyone that does that, and and we, uh, my company manages Julia, so this is something we've done with Julia since then, Um, but make sure that you have the artist sign a work for hire agreement, um, so then you can, you know, so pay them some money, hopefully you have some cash, like if, if there's a fan design, and then you know, we talked in the business affairs episode about work for hire agreements. They're very standard, um, but that's that allow that gives you the right to, um, you know, press up that design on a t-shirt, poster, things like that. I 
we, we've done quite a few fan designs over the years and we've never had an issue with a, a fan not wanting to sign a work for hire. So just a disclaimer on that, because I don't want someone to do that. It's such a, it's such a smart, great idea. It's just like, well, that's the, I mean, I know this wasn't necessarily your mentality, but it's just like, well, that's the people you're selling it to. So like have, you know, they, it's all a community, right? Like mm. see what they come up with. But um, yeah, I just wouldn't want to see an artist do that and then have a fan with a attorney parent or something. And then um oh yeah, yeah for sure I mean you have yeah. an attorney parent but <laughs> that's true but I yeah I, I wanted to say like I've also learned so much about um you know like asking people for free work since then like mm-hmm. back then I was like oh yeah just like send me a design and I'll pick one and I think now a days like that's that was back in like 2008 and I had just never heard of any sort of like work workmen's uh agreements around like what's fair and now I realize that like asking people to like send you um to send you work that's specifically for you um with no guarantee that you'll like hire them and or pay them is like not cool um and my my mode now would be more to find someone I do this a lot actually where like I find someone who follows me and I, if I like their art um, then I'll reach out to that person with like also some compensation just for a trial. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think that that is uh, the same, same philosophy of like, well, these are the people that like my music and if we're like mutual fans of each other's art, like that's just a harmonious collaboration to, to base something off of. And I've found a lot of designers that way. Absolutely. And we also want to, you and I have talked about this, like we also want to educate the fans too, because we don't want to see, you know, a young aspiring artist, graphic designer, like make some amazing artwork and just start like giving it away. I mean, I know like, their heart and soul is attached to it, but we're just, you know, I want to educate them as well. I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely deserve to be paid for your work. And I think that that's like, um, a personal choice too. Like there's plenty of fan art that I don't pay for because I didn't ask for it. Um, but I think if, if somebody asks you for it, here's, here's what my actual advice is. If, you find an artist that uh, that you like enough to work for free for, but they seem like they have at least some budget. Don't let your heart that wants to give it away for free win the <laughs> the argument with your <laughs> with your self value. Like if they can pay you, don't just be selfless and and give it to them for free. Like if somebody offers, take them up on it and and accept like being paid because I think that that's like um a really important exchange even just to keep it like to keep boundaries clear because I think also when things get done for free even between friends like not even talking about fans and artists it's like between friends doing each other favors like I just really highly suggest paying each other yeah. e- even small amounts so that it's, I, I just did this with literally my best friend. She engineered a track for me in the studio and she was like, Oh yeah, I'll do it for free. And I was like, no, 
<laughs> I want I want you to like take it as seriously as a job. I want to be able to to like do this as pro as anybody else that I'm paying. And I really do think that that sets a certain tone where where nope, nope. stuff doesn't linger, not get done, stuff like that. Yeah, it com- it professionalizes the situation. Absolutely. Now, merch is obviously far from limited from t-shirts and things like that. Actually, before I, before I get into that, you hit on something that answered a question for me, um, which is why an artist might be hesitant to do merch when you're talking about like, you know, who do I think I am? Like that is very illuminating because we had an artist named Kulla on, I believe, episode 12, and he was talking about seeing amazing musicians play and there's nothing. There's literally nothing available. And the musician would say to him like, oh, you have CDs. How did you do that? And he's like, these are people that have been playing music for years, <laughs> you know? So um, yeah, so th- that answered that question for me, which is very interesting. But also like, I talk a lot on this podcast about monetizing from day one, really like prior to day one. Like, I forget how I normally say it, but basically like start start monetizing like as soon as you start recording, which you do really well, right? Like whether you realize it or not, or you start monetizing before. So I guess that what I'm trying to say is like, it's the same concept with merch. Like, you know, Ariel Hyatt said this um, very early on in the podcast, and I know there were some artists that picked up on it. Feed them where they eat. I mean, maybe that sounds a little commerce or something, but it's like people can't support you if you don't let them. For sure. Yeah, I'd love to say more about like what prevents artists from from making merch or even just the grander idea of making money, like having having the making of money be a part of your artistic life um, is really hard for artists, I think. Um, And, you know, the the best uh, literature I've ever read on it is definitely The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer. I, I recommend it to like anyone who's struggling with this entire idea. Um, but I, I recently counseled this amazing artist who's a dancer. Her name is Shauna Davis. And she was making a film uh, called Black Eco. And uh, we were set up by a friend who was like, hey, I, I need to call in a big favor. Can you counsel my friend? Like she she wants to run a Kickstarter, but she's like absolutely petrified. Right. And we got on the phone. She was like, does anyone actually want a shirt? And, and I was like, it depends on the shirt. You yeah. know, like if you've got some ugly design, then no. But you know, she, she's like cool, like pinnacle, cool, like LA avant-garde dance. Cool. Um, (laughs) so, so like astonishing to watch her dance and just like, I invite anyone to check out black eco Shauna Davis. Um, but she was like, yeah, like, I just, I don't know. Like I feel, uh, so apprehensive about offering that like no one's gonna get it and I was like your audience and I would say this to anybody like your audience is into your art because it makes them feel a certain type of way um either 
you know, with music, lots of times it's an emotional processing or dancing, huge deal to like, if you can make music that people move to, like, uh, or are creating a movie that people are watching you move and it inspires them to move, like, there is merch that hits that same note. Um, you know, like the kind of t-shirt that you would wear to a dance class or the kind of t-shirt that um, I have this style category I like to call uh, off-duty dancer. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Where you look like you could maybe be a dancer, but you're not like, you know, on your way to a job or anything. <laughs> you're comfy, you're cool, you're stylish, but totally. not like super polished. I was like, make a shirt for those people. Yes. And um, she, it was her biggest level on the Kickstarter was wow. the shirt. And uh, like, I'm getting mine in the mail soon. <laughs> you know, just because I was willing to help was, didn't mean that I was going to do like such a big level. Like maybe I would have contributed to one of the smaller levels, but the shirt was so cool. <laughs> totally. I was like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go, you know, a higher budget for such a cool shirt that I... I really value my clothes, my style. Like yeah. I don't like to have so much stuff. Um, so when I do buy something, it's because I really, really like it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's a good reminder for every artist. Like you don't want to make something because this is, this is what I think deters people. It's like, Oh, well, my art is my heart and my soul. Yeah. And how could I possibly have like try to sell people something like money feels heartless to artists, but you can put your heart into the art of marketing. <laughs> you can put your, your heart into the art of merch design. And um, if it's coming from a place where you want to give people something like a shirt to wear to their friends like backyard party and feel cool or a bottle to keep them hydrated or uh you know like sweatpants to feel comfy and taken care of if you've got some music that's like about curling up and processing your feelings like make merch that that feels like that and um I really feel like people want an opportunity to get further into the art that they already like you're already making something they like and they want to like wear <laughs> a representation of that art that's how I am as a fan like I just want to I want to be reminded of like that film project or like one of my all-time favorite bands is Parcels and my favorite hoodie that I wear like all day, every day is their hoodie. Totally. I, that is okay. First, I want merch sweatpants. <laughs> I, have you ever seen anyone do that? I haven't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm out of but, the loop. Who has merch sweatpants? I feel like it's a, it's something that huge people do, but there's no reason to not do it as a smaller artist. Like Ariana Grande definitely has sweatpants. Yeah. Got it. Well, you know, okay. So that's, again, that is all really interesting. And so for those, you know, you're talking about like, you know, your art is your heart and your soul. I mean, we talk about that all the time on this podcast, but 
um, your fans want to support your heart and soul and the kind of, I don't mean average in a bad way, but kind of the, the lay person fan will very often say, well, I always buy merch because I want to support the artist. And we talk in the Don Passman episode in the business affairs episode where like, well, if they're signed to a major label and have a 360, that might not be support. So I'm not trying to get too into the weeds or inside baseball, but I, but for the artists <laughs> who are fearful of this, know that there is a mentality amongst music fans that are like, I want to support the artist. So I always buy merch. So again, let them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there's, there's definitely a type of person that I would meet in like the merch line who like straight up doesn't care about what they're buying. <laughs> right. Um, that's for sure. But yeah, I think that there, there's like kind of a people, people who don't have money to spare still buy merch if it's good. Yeah. And also like, it's really important to have a price point for everyone. Um, you know, whether it's merch table online Kickstarter, I, I was on a call with a merch company today and all these ideas were getting thrown around and I was like, have some, have some pins, have some badges, you know, have some $2 items. Um, so I think that's really important. And, you know, well, okay. So before I talk about, cause you just talked about like, you know, people you meet at the merch table, which we'll definitely get into. But again, it doesn't always have to be t-shirts. And I know it can be a little overwhelming when it's like, you can do anything. I mean, first, you know, you want it to be meaningful, right? It's an extension of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, get creative, right? Because it can be expensive to, you know, print some of this stuff up front. So like if it's something you can make, I know we had an artist do like um, paleo homemade cookies because she is paleo. Mm. But I remember at one of your New York shows, you were backstage before putting together flower crowns for you and your band. (laughs) And then you made like 20 more. So you guys all looked great. You know, you had your flower crowns on stage and then you made 20 or more flower crowns and sold them at the merch table. I mean, brilliant. Do you, I mean, not to get like too into the weeds, but it's like, do you remember like what you sold them for? Yeah, I think I sold them for 30 bucks. And I will say, I will say like somebody, more than one person uh, didn't like that price. They were like, this is, Mm. these are fake flowers. Like, I don't understand why this is 30 bucks. Um, and like to that person, I was like, totally don't, don't buy it. (laughs) Don't do not, do not buy this. Uh, but there were only 15. Um, I did two shows, like two release shows where I did that. And before I even started playing music, those crowns were sold out. Yeah. Uh, like before I went on stage and So I think that's maybe another deterrent. Like people don't want to make something nice because they don't want to spend the money on the production that would then make the product expensive for their fans. Right. And there will always be people like balking at expensive items. Sure. Um, and, And I think that that is kind of a function of like, they want it, yeah, <laughs> but they're right. they're not they're not willing to spend that money on it. 
And that's just like a confronting thing for anybody. Like I want that thing. I'm not willing to spend that money on it. And I'm mad that it costs that much. (laughs) Even Um, though it's homemade by the artist, right? Like it's custom, it's unique. Fake flowers last forever. Yeah, man. Like I, and, and also rare, like super rare. There were only 30 that existed forever and ever and always. Um, And it's like, for me as an artist who like I'm touring, I'm, I'm doing like most of my time is dedicated to other things. So I, I stayed up until like three in the morning working on those things. It's like, I also have to make an amount of money that feels worth it to put in that time. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to, this sounds like, I feel silly saying it, but like, I don't want to deprive the people that would buy it for fear of the one or two people that would try to like shame me for charging that much. Right. And for, for any of those people, um, you know, it's free and lasts a lifetime that you're so generous uh, (laughs) about is a selfie with Julia at the merch table. Right. Like I, I do think it's like a bit strange when when fans uh get aggressive and, and uh uh what's the word? Crit- yeah, like just criticizing an artist for for like selling out or certain things like that. I'm like, um man, I, I'm just so generous with my time and attention, like and you have it right now. Yeah. Like you, you have my time and attention right this minute. I'm giving it to you mm-hmm. for no reason. And you're using this like time together with an artist you like to have like a conflict. <laughs> I don't right. get it. I yeah. don't get it. <laughs> Just don't buy the flower crown. I don't know. <laughs> you blame alcohol for that one because I am totally with you. I cannot even imagine going up to anyone and being like, this is too expensive. Like you wouldn't say that in a store even. <laughs> You know, that's yeah. pretty faceless. I mean, listen, go to the Renaissance Fair. They've got like $200 flower crowns. So they, they're they merchandising uh, to meet the demand of their, uh, their, the supply and demand of their clientele. So, Well, the thing is, I always feel like there's going to be 2% of haters no matter what you do, even amongst your hardcore fans, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's really hard to not like feel that or notice that, but you do have to realize that 98% of people love it. Yeah. It, I, I think Amanda Palmer's book was really nice in that way too, because, you know, like she, she probably went through the worst of it in terms of being criticized by people that used to love her. And on the other side of it, like she was still, she still has such a core group of people who yeah. love her and and it's hard to focus on that while it's happening especially at the volume it was happening to her so yeah. whenever i'm getting kind of battered by a small percentage i just remember like it's natural for me to feel this upset and like maybe there's something to learn here um but like more than more than that i just need to like focus on the people that are 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 actually happy with what I'm doing because yeah there's a lesson in that too 
like to look at the people that are supporting whatever direction you're going in. For sure. I talk about this a lot with, um, Melissa, your manager, my business partner with, with artists, even with athletes, like it's really, you know, talk to myself about this. It's challenging to do, (laughs) but I think it's really important to not get too high on the highs or low on the lows. And and this falls into it. Like I've, I've heard, you know, we've had Justin Vernon, from Bonavera on the podcast, um, you know, he said something like, I'm not as good as my best review and I'm not as bad as the worst fan comments. I mean, he didn't say it quite like that, but I think that's oh a really gosh. healthy mentality. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. I'm not as bad as my worst criticism and I'm not as good as my best review. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really like, that's the other side of it, uh, of like, not allowing the um the hype to take you yes and and not getting cocky I think that that's like the the total reverse of the um like oh I don't want to print merch because who do I think I am like the other side of it is like why could like print shit and they would buy it like yeah if you ever get to that place I just (laughs) um I I think that that's what makes other artists scared. Like they're afraid that they'll turn into somebody who's just like printing nonsense to like grab more money. Are there people like that? You don't have to name names, obviously, but like, have you gotten that vibe? Yeah, it shows. I've definitely gotten the vibe that like the the merch is, is just like a cash grab and that the the way that it's being um, handled is really sloppy as well. Right. Um, but it, it's, it's really like at, at shows, like being in the fan position, it, everything's a factor. Like, honestly, the attitude of the person selling the merch is, is a factor. Yes. Um, I actually talked about that. I had Brian Viglione on my first podcast. I have a, I have a book before this and podcast before this called Interning 101. And I was the Dresden Dolls merch person for a long time. And I think yeah. it's one reason why I get so emotional about merch. And I know this has changed a little bit um, with the proliferation of the internet, but um, I used to be the conduit between the fan and band. I mean, Amanda and Brian, who are the Dresden Dolls, Um, we're amazing at coming out and signing, but for the hours before that, right. And the hours before they go on stage, I was the conduit. So to have like a, you don't have to be Midwestern, but like a smiley Midwestern person, you know, who's like excited, um, (laughs) it's really important. And again, it was, you know, the internet existed, but it wasn't quite as wild as, or not just wild, but as informative as it is now. So I was also a conduit of information, you know, just like, oh, here's where they're going to be touring next. Here's what's going on. You know, not that you want your merch person like spilling the beans on like unreleased stuff, but I am so with you. So yeah, whenever you can get a friend, family member, you know, someone you trust that is going to care, that's going to really make a difference. And also, um, I used to say to people if they were mulling around the merch table, like, oh, do you want to sign up for our email list? And then that ended up being so powerful for the band and Amanda in the long term is collecting all that fan data, whether they bought something or not. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think that like having an experience uh, of like someone being friendly and like it's an extension of the artist. It's almost like you you got to interact with like a member of the crew of the artist that you really like. Like for I I can just in this conversation, I can remember my times buying merch from people <laughs> like yeah. and and what those those booths looked like. Like I used to really geek out about um the setup, like the the display I always both sides like as an artist and as a fan I would just geek so hard about like the Christmas lights the fold of the shirt the way it's displayed the sign even the price list like everything is an experience and that's what I mean by like putting like there's an art to it and you can put your heart and soul into something that feels like not a part of your artistic expression it it actually is 100% and yeah i mean that it, it's just it's so important and you know at one point i mean not to like bring commerce right back into it cuz i have something emotional to say after this but um at what point did credit card readers come into play for you and and how did that affect things Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, I was doing it before credit card readers. And let me think, um, could it have been like 2000? Let me think. Okay. My first Bonnaroo was 2010 and I don't think I had one yet. Right. (laughs) Um, and then I played Bonnaroo the next year too. And I think maybe I did. So yeah, it used to be, I mean, this, this is like what I was saying at the start, like I have always crushed it with merch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, like, I don't remember exact numbers, but it, it felt like my whole career, the merch numbers just went up and up. And like, I would frequently surpass the fee that I was getting paid by whatever yeah. club with merch sales i mean the show that you had the flower crowns at <laughs> you like there was a line of fan also you created a selfie wall that i feel like was flower crown themed maybe also do you know what was wild is the club had had a bridal party the weekend I before I didn't know and <laughs> they had um Oh, you were at the New York show. So this wasn't yeah. at the New York show, but I, um, this was, sorry, this was at the LA show and you were at the New York show, but uh, the LA show, they gave us this balloon arc that had been for the bridal party oh that was the previous weekend. So our selfie wall was like even more bomb. <laughs> totally. Um, and then for for, yeah, the New York show, like, I I think I just got like a tinsely background and a border and um because the band wore the flower crowns and we didn't sell them um like if anybody wanted to just take a picture in the crown without buying one that's like we had we had crowns there that they could wear oh and 
the the record so the reason the flower crowns even existed at all as merch was because the record that i was dropping was called Ugh, wow and on the cover i'm wearing like a ginormous flower crown that i made it's like right. jumbo size um so i think i also had that um and if you wanted to wear like literally the crown from the album cover you could wear that in our selfie too <laughs> I love it. I mean, that merch line was as long as a New York City block because that venue <laughs> covers an entire block. And I remember saying to your, I remember your sync person saying this to me, and I've seen him at a million shows in my life. He was like, I've never seen anything like this. And do you remember what you said when I told you that? No. I hear that all the time. <laughs> I was about to say just now, I feel, I feel like Almost every club I've ever played, they're like, I've never seen this. <laughs> yeah. It's cool. It's really cool. I love meeting fans after shows. I love the merch line. I love like people come with poses in mind. And especially <laughs> um, my my bandmate for the last four, maybe five years, Chase Burnett. Woo! It's also just, I love Chase. Check out his music. He's so good. Um, so Chase Burnett and I would just like be having a blast at the merch table, like getting CDs. You know, like somebody asks for a shirt size and you can be like, yeah, sure. Or you can be like, medium. <laughs> like, totally. It's just like fun. And then Chase is also like a really talented photographer. So um like just the lighting, caring yeah. about the lighting and, and the pose and making sure that the person is happy with the photo before they go. Like that was also such a huge part of it. I wanted people to feel um, like taken care of. Cause it's actually, I'm, I'm more and more familiar with the fact that like having your photo taken is quite a vulnerable position to be in. Mm. Like it's in somebody else's hands and I'm going to look at this like visual representation of myself at an important moment, meeting an artist I love. Mm -hmm. And if I hate the way I look, like suddenly it turns, it's dark. Totally. <laughs> it's a dark day. But if you love that photo, you love that artist, you had a fun time at the merch table, then there's just no room for the kind of common experience of like buyer's remorse right <laughs> like there's just a lot of value to be had and mm -hmm. I, I really love to give a lot of value and you do I mean can you remember not going out to sign right like I mean you've probably been doing that at least a decade after every time you play oh yeah I've never I've never skipped the merch line I know artists who have um, and I, I think that like, you know, mental health is a big deal to keep in mind. And I would, if somebody was like, I just, I literally cannot handle that kind of social interaction. I would sure. never like push somebody to do it, but I have to say like, it is the, I think it's part of why I have had fans that have lasted for over a decade. Cause like we actually have had uh, impactful interactions. 100%. And I also remember at that New York show, you, like, I, I think I went to the merch table to cover it for our intern for the last two songs so she could 
see your show and then suddenly oh. your show ends and you are sprinting towards me. You're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm like, do you <laughs> want water or do you want to pee or something? It's just like you were there before the fans. You were ready to go. It was really amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's um, years of touring have taught me that if you try to slowly make your way to the merch right. table, you won't make it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. People um, will stop you. Uh, yeah. So, I, you know, there's stats behind all this that I don't have. But, you know, artists are going to double their merch sales. You know, if if they hang out by the merch table afterwards, they're going to double their merch sales maybe again if they have a, a credit card reader, a square reader, or whatever you want to use. But, I mean, you're exactly right. It's like you are creating a priceless interaction with those moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember waiting to meet Fiona Apple in middle school forever after a show. Oh <laughs> it didn't happen, you know, and you just make it happen. It's it's really special. Um, yeah. One thing I meant to comment on, um, we were talking about the importance of displays. For sure. Do you want to share any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, okay, one of the most impressive displays I've ever seen is Walk the Moon. Um, I saw Walk the Moon um, because we were on two sides of the same venue. Like lots of venues have a small stage and a big stage. And uh, I was on the small stage. Walk the Moon was just right next door. And I got to go check out just like one or two songs. And their merch booth was gorgeous. Like the lighting was on point. They had so many different designs and none of them were throwaways. And like, this is, this seems like, you know, uh, innocuous, but the shirts were um, pulled taut in a t-shirt. Like the, the sleeves were folded like really perfectly. So they weren't just like straight out. They were kind of like folded down on a really perfect seam. And you know, no wrinkles, no, uh, like shadowy, whatever. It's like humans are really aesthetic. (laughs) And if you take an approach to your merch booth, um, like it's a store that represents your style. It's not just the merch that represents your style, the, the display of it. And then, um, they they were big and they had like a kind of a grid that it looked like they could fold up and and re reestablish at any venue. Mm-hmm. But I also saw um, on a smaller scale like the more uh, what do you call it? Like I'm trying to avoid the word quirky, <laughs> like like quirky girls, like kind of um, totally. DIY vibes um, and not necessarily girls, just, you know, more of the homespun type of feeling. I Mm -hmm. used to really adore when someone had a suitcase, you just pop open the suitcase and on the back of the suitcase would be the CDs and a shirt and maybe stickers and stuff. And then inside the suitcase would be the merch. And I always thought that that was such a sweet setup. Like it's not just style too. When you're on the road, it's like, ease yeah you don't you don't want to like get resentful at what you have to do like no automate the system so that you're having the easiest time but the most beautiful result 
Exactly. The functionality is really important. I'm so with you on the suitcase that lights up like it's, I actually just watched Pulp Fiction last weekend. So it lights up like <laughs> that suitcase in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, but also like, cause again, it should be like part of your gear, right? It's just like, okay, you got the instruments, the cables, the merch suitcase. Um, but I, you know, I think something, you know, if that's intimidating or, over, or overwhelming um, for people, I think uh, when, when I used to tour with the Dresden Dolls, like in, I mean, for a long time, but like in the earliest days, um, we would just have like a $15 clip light from a um, hardware store and it just mm-hmm. illuminated the whole merch land, whether we're in some dingy bar or we played a barbecue on the first tour or you're wherever <laughs> at South by Southwest or whatever, just having that $10, $15 clip light or clip light um, changed everything. Big deal. Big deal. <laughs> I love it. Um, Cool. So, okay. I just have a couple other merch things to cover for people. Um, Yeah. I mean, you definitely talked about if, if, if you like it, your fans like it. So, you know, this podcast is called how to build a sustainable music career. That's the first half. So yeah, I mean, keep that stuff in mind. So if you want to use, you know, organic cotton, if you want to use um, compostable packaging, there's a lot of stuff like that available. I know Ambient Inks is a company that definitely does compostable. Am I saying that right? Compostable. I'm a composter. (laughs) Compostable packaging. So yeah, so just keep all that stuff in mind. Quality, you know, stuff you're into is important for the audience. Um, As, I mean, do you have any comments on that? I didn't mean to skip, but we kind of talked about that, but. Yeah, no, I just uh, echo everything you just said. Cool. And then as folks' careers grow, um, they may want to look into – I mean, this this might come up organically, but if you're touring internationally a lot, you might want – and say you're big in Australia, you may want to have a merch company there because it's really expensive to ship stuff you know, overseas. So um, there's definitely bigger artists that, and same with their online stores, right? So a bigger artist might have a North American store, a European store, Australia, whatever. Um, Can I spit some wisdom on quantities? Yes. Um, I would highly recommend if you're on tour, um, having, making a big merch order but having your merch company send you mm. uh, portions along the tour. Yes. Because I think that that is, you, you want to get the price break by ordering the big thing, but having to make space for like five boxes at the start of your tour and then like two boxes midway and then none by the end. It just like, mm-hmm. you, you could maximize your space by um like making the big order and then being like can you send half now and half three weeks in yeah Um, i would say don't sleep on three xls that's like probably the thing that i get thanked for the most is having inclusive sizing i think that people really forget and um and maybe even just order like a very small number of them, but it actually like if somebody is on the bigger side, then they might even just skip. Like, sure, they could fit an extra large, sure. but they they want it to be like a more loose fitting thing. Like, get those big sizes. Yeah, you might sell way more than you anticipate selling. So don't sleep on those. Um, and then lastly, if you're new to merch. 
um, it is tempting to, to shoot for the price break by ordering some huge quantity. But if you're new and, you, and you're not sure how things are going to sell, like I just, I would really recommend ordering a small amount. It's better to leave people wanting yeah. more and having to reorder and, and sure paying just a little bit more per item because you ordered in smaller batches. But um, it's better than having like outdated merch that is just sitting there as your style evolves and no longer, you know, it's not something you're pushing anymore. It's cool to, to like, I've, I've had that happen and I've done like big basement blowout sales and that's like fun to get rid of the vintage merch. But um, I think it, it's nice to actually clean house along the way and not have stuff like sitting in storage especially if you're fulfilling yourself, like you don't want to have a bunch of stuff lying around your house. Yeah. And there's a big movement towards on-demand merch companies. Um, I, to be totally frank, I haven't had the best quality experience. Do you know what an on-demand merch company is? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's like where you don't actually house any of it and yeah. someone can just specifically order their one piece. Right. And print it on demand and I mean I think that that is cool for certain circumstances but you make so much less correct per item so much less so I would say if you're brand new and you have no money (laughs) you could try um you know working with an on-demand company could be a good experiment you know to figure out what is working, what isn't working. Julia is absolutely right. As you grow in your career, your profit margins are going to be much better um, for, you know, with a quote, traditional merch company. So if you work with an on-demand company, I would just ask about quality because like I said, I've I've had quality issues with multiple on-demand companies, but I'm trying a new one and I will share their name. They're called Fourth Wall. And I, I mean, I guess merch companies have investors. That makes sense. But one of their investors is Serena Williams' husband, and they have like 17 million in funding or something. And I was like, wow. I mean, I'm not saying like go work with someone because they have funding, but I was like, well, they're going to be around for a while. I was really upfront about the quality thing. So I'm giving Fourth Wall and Serena's husband a shot. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that the longevity of, of something is really to be considered like if you're trying to expand your, your, what's accessible through you as an artist. Yeah. Like that's what you should have in mind. Like don't make something cheap that you you'll just sell once and then people will have that buyer's remorse. Like try to create something where someone's really glad they spent that money and that it's quality. And, um, and that's like a return customer Mm -hmm. in many ways. Yeah. And like, this is, you know, this goes across the board, not just for merch stuff, but you know, they're, there are going to be issues here and there, no matter what merch company you work with or what, you know, whether it's traditional or on demand or whatever. And the most important thing is just get back to that fan, replace it. And then they're happy. Like customer service is just like communication is queen. For sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we definitely touched, we, we kind of danced around this a little bit, but it's important to have a good relationship with your merch company. 
Um, so they can help you with those projections on the road. They can ship ahead to Canada. They can work with you on, you know, what is sold well, you know, what hasn't. Mm-hmm. So you work with Hello Merch. So shout out to Hello Merch. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's not really a question. <laughs> but no, yeah, it is like so if you're trying to create return customers with your your fans, like, you're actually, you don't have as much control over that as your merch company does. So you want to find people who care. It's a big deal. Absolutely. Yeah. And also just a couple more things uh, that crossed my mind. If you're working with international merch companies, that can be really helpful um, because we don't always know holidays in other countries. So my best friend was the Dresden Dolls merch person, Laura Keating. She's gone on to do many more things. Um, But I mean, both of us have stories of just like chasing, you know, FedEx boxes in Europe on random bank holidays we didn't know about, you know, so they can help give, you know, if you're just like, oh, have it delivered on a Monday and then it's Guy Fox Day or whatever in the UK, um, you might not be able to get that gear. I mean, but we've also crowdsourced that. I I mean, Laura, probably a little bit more than I, where it's just like, okay. Or I I think one time, like, and this is legit. (laughs) I don't know. I'm messing up stories, but you get the idea. Like maybe FedEx was shut down because of storms or something. So she had the band post like, hey, if any fans can like pick up this merch at FedEx or something, like free guest list for the rest of tour or whatever. I mean, sometimes you just like have to work with work with what you can on the ground. Um, I also wanted to add uh, kind of similar work with work with what you have. Um, speaking Speaking of Laura. Um, so Laura's sister is Zoe Keating. I keep referencing previous episodes. Zoe was on, I believe the second episode of this podcast and I was tour managing Imogen Heap, who's also a guest on this podcast and Zoe, and I needed a merch person for Europe. And, uh, Zoe said, oh, my sister would be great. She, (laughs) she, she puts up hardware store displays at at a hardware store in upstate New York. Anyway, so in Dresden Dolls world, of course, you know, we had to try her out first. We couldn't just say, because in all seriousness, merch is super important. Um, I mean, that's what this episode's about. So Amanda had a solo show at Joe's Pub in New York City, and I was so busy managing, tour managing, doing crazy guest list. Um, And I come back, and and also the merch setup is really weird at Joe's Pub. It's like behind the stage and hard to find. And Laura had um, found some duct tape and some scissors and cut out. I mean, it it didn't look like creepy, like serial killer writing or something, but like cut out the the letters and the numbers and stuff to make a merch display out of duct tape, scissors, and a music stand. So, you know, I mean, I I would just grab like when I was doing merch, if I needed, you know, just like go to the bar, find some paper, a Sharpie or whatever. But um, yeah, so don't get intimidated by like these setups or anything. It's like you just have to, I mean, you know, like Warp Tour founder Kevin Lyman, I mean, there's stories of him like, okay, see that pile of wood? We need it for the stage. Go, you, you know, it's just like you just <laughs> use whatever you need. So, yeah. Getting creative is, is like such an integral part to merchandise. I really love, I love like making it work. Me too. Okay. So, last thing on this topic. Um, which you alluded to sales and specials slash promotion. So I remember probably during the pandemic, your merch company came to us and was like, we have all these, you know, custom Julia ukuleles in our, our warehouse. Um, I don't know who thought of it. It was them or you or us or whatever. Um, 
But someone's like, let's run a flash sale. And we sold out of like 100 ukuleles in a few days. Yeah, I did not think that that was possible. Because <laughs> even at a flash sale, it was like still $100. Totally. Um, so, I, you know, it's still like kind of a big expense. And yeah, just immediately. So I think in under a day. Yes. And you're so good at that. It's just like, cool. If, there, if there's something that's been sitting around for a while, it's just like, you know, you're like, send me, send me one of the shirts. I'll cut it up and I'll do something creative and post on social. So yeah, I mean, your merch, your merch store online for the most part is just going to sit there if you don't promote it. And again, we have all these holidays and we have all these, you know, different reasons to offer discounts and share stuff. So do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of reasons to um, put extra oomph behind something and like, Holidays are definitely one. Like, I really like to remind people around Christmas time, not just about my merch, but like any artist's merch um, or small businesses. Like, I've I've worked with small businesses before to make merch, and I think that um, around Christmas time or any like gift buying holiday, it's just like worth it to remind people that it's like a a more uh, heart-based purchase to to go for something that's like an actual human being yes <laughs> rather than a company awesome well that concludes the merch por- portion of this podcast um nice. anything else you want to add about Merchland? all good <laughs> okay they're experts we covered it All right. So now I'm going to take you through your career a little bit through the lens of the book. Um, So chapter one is called Get Your Art Together. So my question for you on that is when do you know that you are ripe and ready to record as opposed to maybe like, like feeling like you're forcing it? Wow. Well, I have to say my opinion on that has really changed recently. Um, during the pandemic year, and even before the year started, just like at the beginning of 2020, I decided to record one song a month, um, original song. And it's because I had let songs like build up in me without recording them. And just kind of like, I had this mentality of like, oh, like eventually, eventually, and eventually never came because recording is expensive. It takes like uh, some real planning. You have to find like your team and like to do the whole thing. Um, and if you're doing it alone or in a smaller group, then you have to have some sort of constraint to get you to finish it. And so that's where this um, this idea to commit to releasing one original track a month came from to just like, force me and Chase Burnett, my bandmate, to like finish it. And um and like I needed to do that so that I could do what I'm doing now, which is more high-end recording of more current songs. Like I spent 2020 releasing like a lot of breakup tracks um that I don't feel anymore (laughs) like 
Um, it's great. I, I love songs, even if they're not relevant to my life anymore. Um, but I think the recording process is more gratifying when the lyrics really still speak to you. Um, and what I'll say, this is my advice and it's not like the, I wouldn't say like everyone should do exactly what I'm saying, but this is my advice. Like I would record one song at a time. If you've got a song, um, I would just put your everything into the one song and like finish it, make it everything you want. And if you've got an album in you, just go one song at a time. Um, but I do think that the climate of the music industry is has been veering towards singles for a long time and it's never been more um, like intelligent to just release singles. Like TikTok culture is just like built for singles, not albums. I don't even know if my current manager, Melissa, would agree with that, but that's just like my what I'm what I'm seeing out in the world. Oh, she would totally agree with that. We we, <laughs> talk, we talk about that a lot and Spotify is the same way. Um, we had an artist on the podcast who I mentioned, uh, Kala, who releases an album every year on his birthday on his website. But then he's, this is something he's learned. Even though we know this, unfortunately, kind of in a creepy way from the head of Spotify, but um so it comes out on his birthday in April. You can get it on his site right now. But then he releases each track to the DSPs, Spotify, Apple Music, blah, 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 every two weeks. And then that's leading into the album being available on Spotify in full in September. And so he learned uh, last year he released two songs um, during the same week. And one didn't do well at all. But when he does it every two weeks like the algorithms love that. I I feel really gross saying that, but I you know, there's in a in a weird way there's something liberating about that too because like when we first started working together, you were recording oh wow. And <laughs> you were putting a lot of pressure on yourself as far as deadlines and release dates. I was like you own your label and your master recording like you made up the release date. Why are you <laughs> making up a release date to create stress for yourself? So, you know, maybe yeah. that's another way of looking at, I mean, again, another artist said it on this podcast, feeding, feeding them where they eat or these algorithms <laughs> as obnoxious as that is, because again, I know, I know I mentioned Fiona Apple. It's like, she releases like one album a decade and it's always so <laughs> worth it. Right. So mm -hmm. everyone's process is different how they go about that. But I mean, I think it's so beautiful what you said about, you know, forgot exactly how you said it, but like singing the lyrics when you still feel that way, mm -hmm. I mean, is just so powerful. So um, that's really interesting. And I have talked about you on so many interviews and so many podcasts in particular with what you just talked about, um, the releasing a song once a month. So yeah, on one hand, I, you know, I feel I'm jumping around a little bit. On one hand, I think it's really important to wait until, you know, you intu you intuitively like know you're ripe and ready to re record, but you also bring up a really great point. And I know there's artists, I think Zoe Bookbinder was one of them. I think she was like 
trying to write a song a day. Maybe she was even putting some of those sketches out for people. And I mean, what better way to get better, right, at songwriting and and recording all this? So there's no right or wrong answer. But anyway, I'm jumping around a little bit. But what I was going to say, where I've talked about you a lot, is, you know, you were releasing a song a month on the first song and video on the first of every month in 2020. And then when the pandemic hit, you obviously haven't had immense compassion for everything that's happening. But as far as, you know, your music career goes, you were like, is it the first of the month yet? Because you were already in that process. And yes, you had to cancel a tour. Um, but yeah, you just kept putting it out. And I, I think that's really important for people to understand. Like, I know I'm, I'm super grateful that there's people listening to this and there's people learning, but you have to be nimble too, because I think it's okay for you, for me to say, you know, okay, so you're releasing a song and a video a month and then George Floyd is murdered and there's Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matters. I can't talk right now, but you know what I mean? There's protests going on and it's like so many artists were going through that, right? I mean, we're talking about merch before and feeling weird about that. It's just like when there's people being killed in the streets, how are you like, here's my t-shirt. Um, so we talked about giving proceeds that that month to Black Lives Matter and the ACLU and supporting these organizations. And obviously, a lot of artists did that. So I guess my point is, is just be nimble. There's no right or wrong. I'm, I'm huge on intuition, but you have to be nimble with all this stuff because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it just comes down to like using your platforms for good, like when when I think the whole nation was being called upon to do better and um and that was like an opportunity to do better just like send the money where it's needed most well and again like my book this book that this podcast is based on came out in march 2020 so it's like awesome release date right the whole world shuts down but again it's just no matter what happens like, you know, just be mindful of the situation. I think like the per- the first piece of promo I shared um, when this book came out was I was on my friend Ariel Hyatt's podcast. And so I posted and I was like, want to pretend it's a few months ago? Listen to Ariel and, and I on this podcast, you know? So you just want to be sensitive to what's happening. Um, you don't want to put out a press release on September 11th, 2001, which I know an artist who called their manager and did that. And she was like, she was in New York. She couldn't get a hold of her mom. She's like, the world is ending. And he's like, yeah, I saw something about that on TV. <laughs> so you just want to be a little aware of what's going on. And maybe it's a little easier now in the age of Twitter. I like this, the last, I don't promote my book as much anymore right now, but when I was in 2020, I would literally look at what was trending on Twitter to make sure some horrible thing didn't happen. And I wasn't like, oh, here's a five-star review of my book. So <laughs> be nimble, be aware. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. Chapter two, pre-recording marketing foundation, email list, text message club, and social media. Um, I mean, you're way past this in your career, but all I'm saying here is like before you hit the studio, because the point of the book and the podcast is taking people through the, mo- you know, from recording to release and creation to distribution. So get, you know your email list, social media handles in place, all that good stuff before you hit the studio because when you're ready to share your baby, you don't want to be like, oh, I do want to be on TikTok or I do, you know, oh, wait. I mean, most people have their social handles in place, but how about this? 
for a question. Do you remember, I mean, I know I should know this, but when did your career start and when did social media start? Um, my career really started, uh, 2007. Okay. Um, I was in college and there was no Instagram yet, but there was Twitter. Yeah. And, um, and YouTube was really like, it's weird. I, I don't know that this is all the way accurate, but it seems like it was the only social media that I was really on. Like Twitter existed, but I didn't do it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that live journal and all that existed. Um, but yeah, uh, I didn't get on Instagram until I moved to New York City in, in like 2010. Great. So talk about the importance. Uh, I mean, that I'm not, I'm not terribly surprised to hear that that was the timeline because, you know, your career in social media intersect so well, you use it so well. So talk about kind of the, the origins of that and maybe how you use social media now. Like, I, I mean, I loved your post the other day um, that was like, tell me how you feel only in emojis. <laughs> and that's so natural and funny and not forced, you know? <laughs> well, I was in like a bathrobe and a head towel. So I looked exactly like that emoji of the, the woman in the shower. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think that social media is, is really like, it's just another relationship that you need to have with yourself, like any other substance, like it's, it's as addicting as caffeine, uh, (laughs) as constant as food, as, as, um, like dopamine inducing as the best drugs out there. So you, you have to like utilize it in a way that actually nourishes your career and your life. Um, and I would say that I'm still like, fine tuning my relationship to it. I actually delete Instagram really regularly. Mm. Um, and I download it really regularly too. Like I used to be like, Oh, I can't delete it because then like, it's, you know, it's such a big deal. And now it's actually like not a big deal at all to delete it and then redownload it like even 24 hours later. Like I just don't redownload it until I have something to post. Totally. Um, really cuts down on the mindless scrolling um and it's been hugely important i mean i i think that even in the last couple of years like i i've like kickstarter is basically all instagram like i would post one thing on on youtube but most of the promotion just happened on instagram interesting and you are a six figure kickstarter artist which which we will get into Um, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you. I haven't done this in a while, but I, I went through a phase of turning my phone and computer, uh, in the colors off and turning it into grayscale. Yeah. You taught me that. Okay. It was so helpful. Yeah. That is, um, really a wild thing because these, you know, these top computer programmers that go to Stanford and, MIT and all that. I mean, they are literally taught at these, you know, at these amazing schools 
here's the colors that are addicting or here, you know, red will make you do this or, or whatever. So the thing mm-hmm. that is wild about it is when you turn the color back on, I feel like I'm tripping and all I'm doing is looking at a food ordering site, right? So it's just like, yeah. So breaks are super important. Actually, I I mean, you, you actually just answered it. Um, yeah, I think that's brilliant that you delete. I was going to say, you know, what do you do for social? Actually, you should answer that. What do you do for social media breaks besides deleting Instagram once in a while? Um. Yeah, I, I delete the apps. I think that's the biggest thing. And then and I also have like a time set in my calendar uh, called dark mode. Nice. <laughs> and that's just like time to be with no technology at all. I also do no tech days, which is really fun. Like, so good. I just plan ahead, let everybody important know that I'm not going to be on my phone. And then um, just blink off of the face of the internet for a full 24 hours. And, and that's really when I get the most clarity about my career too. It's like, mm-hmm. Oh, the second I get my computer back, I'm going to message this person because I really want to collaborate with them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I am so with you. Rest and breaks are, are so important. Um, that's really, really good to hear. Okay, chapter three, every musician's favorite topic, get your business affairs together and fair compensation. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, do you have any thoughts on this or how do you, it could be a simple, not as simple, but um, how do you handle co-writing? You know, that's, not, I mean, that's something we've been really open about. And, and I mean, you can, you can comment on any of this stuff, not comment. Yeah, I mean, what I'll say is like you... And Melissa, um, as my managers, have been like so such a relief to me as someone who like I just felt like I could not wrap my head around these things. And you've explained it to me and your book is helpful and um and then just having negotiations and stuff like that handled. Like Chase Burnett and I had to have many conversations about writers splits and um and it it felt so much more smooth with knowing that we had you guys to turn to if we ever got stuck um because even like chase and i have like a, a genuinely fantastic friendship and communication and and like trust built up and even still it's like a scary conversation to have right <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I think that's my two cents is like, if you can get somebody to explain it to you, um, and if you have somebody that you can turn to when, if you get lost, like that's the best setup of all time. (laughs) Well, you, you know, you've been even before, even before we met and we met, in, um, in France in like 2013 or something way before that. I mean, you've been definitely an advocate for owning your master recording rights. So why is that important to you? Oh yeah. I mean, that's the lawyer parent coming coming into play. Um, I, yeah, I have always felt like there's almost like a, a flip switch that can turn a career into something 
uh, what's the word? I don't know. Like, I just, what happened to Taylor Swift? Like, totally. she didn't own her masters and everything just got shitty for a while. Like, fuck, I can't imagine. And and I just listened to some of her re-recordings and like, that's that's great, but it's different. And people fall in love with like the tiny minutia of yep. a track like the little, little tones in your voice. And um, and I know that she has plenty of highly loyal fans that are like, I'll never listen to that again, like the, the ones that the other people own. But um, I think most people will probably just keep listening to the ones that she doesn't own. And I it, it breaks my heart because like I said, like your art really is your heart and soul and and I think that um losing control of it, no matter what is promised to you up front in yeah. the long run, it just sucks. I mean Yeah. Yeah, I just ugh. The stories I've heard make make my little artist heart curl up in a ball and sob i had one of those stories happen this weekend i i don't feel super comfortable sharing it but yeah some an artist who's on a label made something and uh that something will not be released oh no and you know we we have opinions on releasing it like do it through patreon like your fans will love this but it breeds that insecurity right? Of like, oh, oh no, well, wait, but the label does I mean, I, I don't know if I'm making sense, right? But it's just, that's just a mess, right? And Melissa yeah. and I are like, do it. This is so good. Your fans will love it. But now there's that fear, right? It's like, well. Is it like the label said like, oh, this isn't good enough. We're not going to release it? Yeah. Oh. Or we don't like, I mean, I, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but obviously how the artist felt was we don't like this. Damn. Yeah. That sucks. Yeah, I mean, that's another crazy part about it is like uh, the artistic vision. I think one of the really common conversations I have with artists about labels and managers, no offense, you've never done this to me, so it's not about you. But like people that know nothing about um making music and people who are not at all your uh target target audience trying to say what's good and bad like i i i find it to be like totally useless to listen to like most people other than your heart your heart, yeah. And that's what I'm or, saying about, yeah. you know, when, I mean, she trusts these people. These are actually good people. I mean, not to, like, be rude to the audience, but I'll explain this to you afterwards and you'll be like, whoa. But what, <laughs> what really sucks is, like, she made this thing and people are like, oh, we don't we don't feel super great about this. So even if she's like, I love this so much, that's even harder to do, right? Because she's already right. been told, like, it just as a sensitive human being. Right. It's just like, so, um, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that's a huge thing. My partner reminds me a lot is just reminding people because I'm, you know, I'm obsessed with the modern music industry because 
if you have access to a laptop for the most part, artists can <laughs> record and distribute now on their own, right? And But that's another huge component of it that I grew up with was when you sell your rights away, you don't have a say over what is released, when is released. And it's really easy. I mean, I don't forget that stuff, but I meet students all the time who have no concept of that stuff. So um, yeah, it still happens. Still happens on 4th of July weekends. <laughs> and that oh. needs to be dealt with. So okay. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead if you have anything else. Well, I think what I want to say is like, there's something that there's stuff that a record label offers that is valuable for sure. But uh, this is something that you've always like, reminded me of which if I just look at my own career I can tell is true is like more than any resource or or external pump to your career is your relationship with your fans and if they like what you do then whatever you make even if your label doesn't like it they probably are gonna like it like if they like you they like what you make um and I think there, there's like this silly little uh, inspirational quote that I've always thought was really good is like, it's not up to you to determine if what you've made is good. It's up to you to put it out. Yes. Absolutely. Like, it's up to them, like the, the public to decide if they if individually they think it's good. But like, it's not it's not up to you to decide that for them. It's just up to you to put it out. Yeah, it's really hard for us as managers because we see the long game of like, oh my gosh, her fans will love this. <laughs> um but that's our job, right? And the label's job is to I don't mean this in a dirty way, like exploit that recording and exploit that song and video as much as possible. They don't care. I I don't mean this to be obnoxious but it's like it's not their job to care about the artist fan relationship when she's 75 and to me I'm like oh my god the fans will love this they'll never forget this you know and that's what yeah. it's all about so moving on to another sexy topic um oh wait no actually we do have kind of a sexy topic first uh chapter four is how to record with or without a budget um so tell us about how you started to get into recording and, you know, what tools were available to you when you were figuring this stuff out? Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I was just on a, on an iMac with the built-in microphone. Amazing. <laughs> um, and I remember getting a laptop and people noticing an audio decline. They thought it sounded worse on the laptop built-in audio. So I got my first microphone um and I've really like I've tried a few but I just circle back around to the Yeti by Blue every time it's the best that is what I'm talking to you on right now amazing um and then uh the recording software I think is also like important um GarageBand has a certain interface that makes things sound a certain way and logic sounds different and um, Pro Tools sounds different. Uh, I personally use logic because I'm not 
willing to do the learning curve of learning Pro Tools and Logic and GarageBand are really like user friendly and kind of have the same vibe. So that leap was pretty easy for me. Um, and then, yeah, Logic just has like really, really good plugins. You just find sounds you like and mess around with them. And then uh, for the track I'm recording right now, I went to a, a real studio with like a real vocal setup because um, I think the vocals are probably some of the most important factors of my music. I love it. That, that's a really beautiful evolution. Okay, now on to the not sexy topic. Um, <laughs> chapter five is music publishing isn't scary or confusing, plus how to land a sync placement. So... I am not trying to call you out with this example. I'm trying to help other people. Um, but when I first, when we first started working with you, I asked you um, what your publishing situation was. And do you, do you remember what you said? Probably. I don't know. You said, I don't have one. And I was like, oh, wow, that's surprising. And then I asked you, and I totally understand why most artists wouldn't know this. I'm like, when you were distributing with TuneCore or CD Baby or anything like that, did you ever check a box that was like, want to make more money? And I think you said no. And then we went up and signed you up for Song Trust um, to collect on your music publishing. Because again, if there is a like subtitle or theme to this podcast, it's if you are just signed up for your PRO, you are missing money. And that excuse me, that was the situation you were in. So we signed you up for Song Trust. And then I don't remember how we found out if sound if Song Trust system bounced one of your albums out of there or something, but you had checked that box with TuneCore once. So they were collecting your publishing administration. I just think it, and we've since done this for you, but I just think it's nice to have all your publishing in one place. So you're not like, oh, I get some money from TuneCore. I get others from CD Baby, others from Song Trust. So- how about this? Do you understand that now? Um, I would say minimally. <laughs> well, here's the thing I want you to understand to share with your songwriter friends. Um, mm-hmm. If you are just signed up for a PRO, do you know what a PRO is? No. It's okay. Performing <laughs> rights organization. Does that help? Cool. Okay. ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC. I think you're ASCAP. Yeah. Okay, cool. So if you're just signed up for ASCAP in the United States, for example, um, you are missing out on money, which is why you need to sign up for Song Trust as well. That's what I want you to understand. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Because they collect money from like all of the places on the internet on your behalf. All of the places for your songwriting, basically. And so ASCAP is just performance royalties for your songwriting and song trust is everything else. So there's a whole bunch of sub revenue streams within music publishing that I would never expect anyone to memorize unless they work for a music publisher. All I want artists to understand is that music publishing is songwriting. So it's not anything to be scared of and run to the hills over. And that if you are just signed up for ASCAP or BMI or CSAC or whatever your country's PRO is, you also need to sign up for Song Trust, otherwise you are missing money. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yay! So that was the case with you. And I don't usually, well, I guess I'm sharing it with everyone now, but 
I share that example often without saying your name. And because that's very <laughs> concerning to me, like you have this amazing career and, and I'm really like you were a, an inspiration for writing this book. I mean, hopefully this isn't, that's a positive and negative thing because we Listen, started working I, with yeah. you. What? I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. It, it's <laughs> alarming. It's alarming that I don't know these things and, and that if I'm like so established, yes, I've been doing it for so long, then what's happening with the people who are brand new. hundred percent. Um, so I, yeah, you don't have to worry about hurting my feelings. I want, I want people to hear. Um, cause especially like if, if that, if that's your situation too, you don't know this stuff, like you don't have to feel bad about it. Just learn from Emily. Yay. <laughs> and I, you know, I, like I said, the, the song trust thing is, or the not collecting on publishing info is very common. It's important to me that people understand that. But I think the other thing that inspired a chapter and like kicked my butt to write this book is that I was finding money for you. And I was like, totally. Oh man, I'm like, if this is how, and like the industry is right to do this because you are so good at so many things, but you had also really been put on this pedestal in my opinion of being like the metaphysical business child of like Amanda Palmer and Zoe Keating. And I know, I mean, I know Amanda's business very well, or I did for a long time. I, Obviously, Zoe is a family friend, and um, it's not always what it seems, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And so if I'm finding money from one of the poster children of the modern music industry, what about everybody else is what I'm trying to say. I think that's totally legit, yeah. Because the industry was pointing at you, being like, she's doing it right, be like Julia. And I'm like, I totally agree. You know, like, (laughs) I love everything you do, everything that's public-facing, but then when I pulled back the curtain a little bit, I was finding some money. So, so yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that's inspiring to people or depressing to people or what. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if I was going to speak to that, like I would just say um, how it looks is, is important in certain ways. Like I have had a lot of success. Um, and like, this is where that block comes in for artists, not wanting to like make money a focus is that I was, I was like not getting money that, uh, that was like definitely mine, um, for no other reason than I just couldn't confront how scary it is to address money. Yeah. But it's there and and hopefully I've laid it out, you know, in checklists and all that good stuff. So you can just make sure. I don't even, I don't even really care. I mean, this is going to be a weird thing to say. I don't even really care if people remember what these revenue streams are. I just want them to look at the checklist in this book and be like, oh, wow, I'm missing sound exchange. Oh, wow. I'm missing song truck. Like that's what I, and then if you want to go back to the chapters and be like, oh, sound exchange is how I get paid. Um for plays on Pandora and Sirius, like, great. But no one's going to quiz you on that. I just, I, it was so frustrating and heartbreaking to be finding money for you and another national act that we started working with along the same, around the same time where I, I know we said this, but I'm just like, oh man, if this is happening to Julia, um, then it's happening to other people. So hopefully we're solving that. For sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very appreciative. <laughs> Thank you.
Um, okay, so the second half of this chapter is how to land a sink placement. Um, you just had a really great placement on Ginny and Georgia. Do you want to talk about that's what that show's called, right? Called, right? I'm not really the, yeah. the demographic. Um, do you want yeah. to tell us about that experience? Uh, yeah, I I got a song placed on a Netflix show. It's actually it's got to be someone who's tapped into like my kind of world of YouTube because there were two other of my like internet friends featured on the episode oh, cool. as well. So <laughs> I really think someone's like watching our little internet crew. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's probably something that I have talked about, wanted, uh, tried to like speak into existence for like over a decade. And it was exactly, I like literally would say I want it to be like a coming of age, like moment where there's, uh, like a camera, like panning around a kiss <laughs> and it's like that and so much more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's great and got a, got a sizable check in the mail. And a streaming bump. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, that's really like the thing that I wanted to happen is that people would be like, um, you know, into the song because of the scene, the way, like, I don't know if you were ever into these shows, but like, I I got really into a lot of the soundtrack of Scrubs and Grey's Anatomy. Nice. So those shows like really created certain artists um, mm-hmm. and I had just always wanted someone to experience my music the way that I got into music from those shows. And I don't know if you remember, but because it's funny, you don't remember approving the brief and I don't remember approving the brief, but then when you asked, you weren't even like accusing, you were like, did I approve? I'm like, you must have. I never would have approved a sync without you and then when I checked it was like we um we all approved it yourself included of course on like July 4th 2020 or 29 so it's clearly just like fourth we're just you know on retreat you know (laughs) whatever but I do remember you completely like you read the brief and you were like it's always been my dream for my song to be in a scene like this so you understood that even from the brief I don't know if you remember Mm -hmm. feeling that and no, if so, no. how did it feel to then see it come? Because, yeah, that was your reaction. I was like, wow, she's really getting it. I'm just seeing, like, sync, Netflix, yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you're just like, oh, this is my dream. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I so, like, that song in particular was, like, kind of about my life falling apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it was also, like, the first time that I had worked with a producer that kind of elevated me to a level of really – feeling like I could compete with artists that I'm a fan of. Yeah. And um, so to see, to have that one be the one that went through to the other side uh, just felt really um, gratifying. And especially like the scene itself, it's like the kind of sex scene where everyone's clothes stay on and (laughs) it's just about the tension. Yeah. And, like, even that, the fact that it was that kind of sex scene that, like, teenage Julia would have been like, I, that's the kind of sex I want to have. Like, 
I can only imagine if sex scenes like that existed when I was younger, like what my preconceived notions about sex would have been. And I think it would have been helpful. That's such a good point. I mean, that, you know, it was the number one show on Netflix for a reason. So it was clearly connecting with people. Oh, yeah. It stayed there for a while. Even through her Taylor Swift controversy. <laughs> yes. Um, and Scott Cresto at Music Alternatives landed that sink. So people know that. That one didn't come out of thin air. So thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. And also, I don't even think we knew the show's title. I mean, that's one reason Scott is really... Or, no, I know, because... Because again, you and I didn't remember approving this. Like we approved it like a year ago or whatever, and then it was happening. And when I went back and looked at the brief, I'm like, it doesn't even say Netflix. So again, we trust Scott. You were excited about the scene, but um, that's happened to me a few times where I've probably told you this. I went back, I was looking, maybe I was looking for something else. And I was like, oh my gosh, we almost had a song in Lady Bird. And it's like, you approve this stuff before you know... What, I mean, again, you have some information, but you don't know it's going to be Lady Bird and nominated for all these Oscars or whatever. So fun yeah. times. Yeah. I have a funny, like totally unrelated story, which is that I helped my roommate do a self-tape audition for Euphoria. I before. love that. <laughs> and so we were like, do I was like jokingly doing the scene with her of um, like Rue and her childhood friend in the bathroom, like flushing drugs down the toilet. Just like truly uh, fucking around the entire time. And then later watching the show and being like, why do I know these lines? Right. Oh my gosh. Amazing. (laughs) So funny. The entertainment industry is like such a wild ride. It's fun, but you got to stay grounded too. Amen. It's important. Take those, take those social media breaks. Mm-hmm. Okay, chapter six, setting up your release and distribution plan. So I don't know if you've ever thought about your releases this way, but um, you definitely start monetizing very early on. Like I said, you're a, you're a six-figure Kickstarter artist. So I don't know, take me through. I mean, you don't have, you don't, I mean, your releases are always different, right? You know, you were just releasing a, a track a month, but yeah, tell me any thought process you might have when you're when you're putting a Kickstarter together and how far in advance of that is, uh, of that is I'm trying to say like, how far in advance do you, do you do your Kickstarter? It's way before the album is out is what I'm saying. So talk to us about kind of pre-orders, Kickstarter, where did that start for you? Yeah, just the sooner the better. Like I, I've done things last minute and I've done things like with so much planning and I, it's so much less stress when you do it with a lot of time especially when it comes to the art um if you're gonna do any merch with it like the sooner you get on that stuff the better like you don't want to be making decisions because you have to it right really sucks exactly and it's like how heartbreaking is it for both of us when you see an artist that you love especially if they're developing and stuff and they're like okay here's my masterpiece and it's just like that's it you know like yeah oh sorry my timer is going off no worries but yeah I mean you do a phenomenal job of like okay like tell us about the the a wow campaign 
Yeah. Um, I designed everything myself. Um, the photo is something that Chase Burnett took while we were on tour. We actually had kind of a, a loose approach to doing the art because we know that like we do when we're collaborating specifically us, um, we work best like on the fly. And when we put too many constraints on it, it gets like not fun. Um, so Chase and I would just like, if we had a day off or whatever, we would like go to a craft store and buy stuff and make content, <laughs> like make scenes and costumes and adornments and then take pictures. Um, so we did a lot like on tour, many, many scenes and outfits and stuff like that. And then that one just happened to be on the last day of a tour at like three in the morning in my hometown. Um, I came out of my childhood bedroom and he was staying in my sister's bedroom and I had like smeared makeup and I was wearing a flower crown just like cuz. <laughs> yeah, like a hoodie, a flannel and a flower crown. And he was like, stay right there. And he took all of these pictures of me. And the face uh, that made it to the, the album cover just like said, Ugh, wow, it was like, it was like not happy, not sad, pretty tired. Um, but like raw, um, especially like the circumstances around it. Like we had just played a hometown show, which is always like a lot. <laughs> And, um, and then from there, it was easy to kind of like find a theme because the flowers were this like big red thing. Um, and that played into like all of the merch and then messing around with the typeface, same thing. Like it just, I played around with it for months before I picked something. And now that typeface is like, such a satisfying marker of that era like the the primary colors of it the slant of it like there's just such a concise marker of like what the style of a uh, wow was um with the flower crowns and that typeface and really all you need is just like some defining characteristics to whatever you're about to release and, and then stay within that realm, like use that level of constraint to be creative. Um, so that was like a big project and that was, that was the approach for that. And then with um, the monthly releases, we had so much less time um, to put like thought into the music videos and style and all of that. And so the same concept is still there though of like finding one defining characteristic like just the lighting or what I'm wearing or the room we're in um, or just the editing style like what's the thing that's specifically about this song and once you find that you can you can kind of build a house around it exactly and again not to get down and dirty when you just said all those beautiful creative things. But again, I mean, you you have been monetizing that album 
well before it came out in, in advance. So that that's what I really want to get across to people. Um, what are some things that worked well for you in, in any of your Kickstarters or pre-orders? Like what has worked well? What are things you've learned? Showing people the music before, like having some music done is a big deal. Like my biggest Kickstarter was one where I basically had like an entire track in that was finished in the video promoting it. People just wanted more of that. Exactly. Yeah. They could hear the direction I was going. They were on board. They thought the song was catchy and they were like, all right, let's, let's make that a reality. Um, Having a really good t-shirt. Like I was talking about with Shauna Davis um, and black eco. And then, um, things that uh kind of speak to what you were saying of like having something for every price point like mm-hmm. I really recommend having something that's really expensive yeah um because there are people that can spend that money want to spend that money and making it something that's like something you actually want to do like I've had ones where uh I would play a show <clears throat> um and that was that was a great idea and those were really fun. The custom ukulele was a Kickstarter idea and those did really well. Um, How important is like the add-on tiers on Kickstarter? Does that make sense? You mean like after the yeah. Kickstarter is done? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I generally, I've made an extra like, five to 10 K in the add-ons. Yeah. Actually, that's Um, not what I meant, but that's really, that was really interesting to me when it happened. So that's good for people to know. Um, Oh, great. Okay. But also what I meant is um, like, say I buy a CD and then I decide I want the t-shirt later. I like how you can go in and do that and not have to like start all over. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's important. I think, um, once someone is down to buy one thing, they're just so much more likely to buy more. Yeah. And again, you get their data, you know, you get their email addresses and then you can communicate forever. So thank you, Kickstarter, for sharing that data. We appreciate that. Um, okay. Also not the sexiest title um, or chapter title. Chapter seven, how to market with or without a budget. Um, what does the word marketing mean to you, if anything? Yeah, just honestly, anything, any content you put out that's free for other people to consume, I would call under the umbrella of marketing. You know, even just yeah. the music you put out is is like a form of marketing yourself. Sure. Marketing your shows, marketing, like, wouldn't it be cool to be a fan of my music? <laughs> wouldn't it be cool to for yeah, to get you know for you to give me your email address and your cell phone number? Wouldn't that be cool? Okay, how? Any advice on FOMO in the age of Instagram as far as this category goes? I mean, or life, but you know what I mean. Do you mean like um... why does this per- why does this artist have that? Why do they have what like? I just feel like FOMO in marketing has gotten, I mean, I'm sure it's always been like that. Like, why is this artist in Spin Magazine and I'm not or whatever? But it's just like, 
algorithmic algorithmically in your face, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's challenging for everyone. Like, why is this? Why does this person have like a beautiful, happy life, and I don't, or something, right? But it seems really prevalent. I mean, this is just the world we we're in. But it's like it seems really prevalent in 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 artist communities communities. I think. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean, comparison is the thief of joy. You know it. um yeah I think that that can really like put a damper on your own pursuits if you're just kind of like hyper focused on someone who's ahead of you in the race and um I feel like there's maybe like a Cardi B quote that's like don't be don't be like uh oh gosh I kind of want to look it up because she's prolific I'll 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 butcher it. Um, just fair warning. But she's like, don't, don't be like a jealous person. Be like a, oh, like how can I get on that person's level? Right. Like let it inspire you. Don't, don't let it like knock you down. Exactly. Like I just think like the grass is always greener on the other side. Focus on your own green grass, right? But if you mm-hmm. truly can't handle it, if you're like, I'm just losing. Like, how did this person get this thing? And, I'm, and the thing might not even be that valuable, to be honest. But like, how do they get this thing that I want so badly? If you really can't handle it, reach out to them. See if they're mm-hmm. down to like get coffee or do a Zoom or whatever. I mean, that's something you couldn't do in the pre-digital era. If, if you're like, oh, why is that artist in Rolling Stone? Like, how did that happen? And so mm-hmm. now, you know, now you can talk to people. I mean, they need it's the art of asking, right? I mean, they need to respond or whatever. But it's just like, you know, and you'll learn. It's just like. Oh, it was my publicist. Oh, that's a friend from college that writes there. That's the only piece of press I've ever gotten. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you just so reach out and find out, but also know that they might have FOMO over you and the things that you have. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about FOMO is like if you're if you're suffering from FOMO, you're suffering from FOMO and it doesn't really like doesn't actually matter what position you are in life. Like perspective is is what you actually need. Um, because I think even just like being able to make art to some people is crazy. Like I know people that are like, gosh, I wish I could sing. And I forget to be grateful for the fact that like I can sing and write a song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and all, I mean, my mom knows what FOMO is, but that's fear of missing out for people that don't know. And if you don't know, that's okay. I, you know, my mom's pretty fairly with it. Um, when I, I mean with hip things, I mean, she's very with it (laughs) mentally or whatever. Um, okay. A couple marketing things specific to you though, even though I know you don't necessarily think about it this way. Tell me about music videos. I mean, you've made so many, you are definitely, I mean, you are an artist first and foremost, but we also get emails from people, from brands and stuff, which I'll talk about in a second, who clearly view, view you as a YouTuber which you also are, but you are an artist first and foremost. So tell me about, you know, your journey with music videos and and YouTube. Boy. Yeah. (laughs) I've done every type. I've done music videos that are really high end and high budget. I've done music videos that cost me nothing. Shot them on an iPhone. Um, I built my career on, on music videos that, that cost nothing and were shot on the built-in camera of an IMAX. So um, you know, my, my best like advice to people is, uh, a, 
a B plus idea, and this is stolen from my friend Shervin Linez. He's a photographer oh, that I, I did. Know, a I know Shervin. Tell him I say hello. I haven't talked to him in forever. Oh, he's the best. <laughs> Um, he, he said a B plus idea is be- that you can execute is better than an A plus idea. That's like out of budget and, and like, you can't pull off. Love that. Yeah. Um, well, amazing. I, that's great. Okay. So I have a little part at the end of this chapter because well, I'll explain because called brand brand sponsor and endorsement partnerships, because to me, this book and podcast is all about here's everything you should be doing and the money you should be collecting. And I, I think there's way too much attention. Oh, oh, wow. Breaking news on this podcast. I swear there's like a tornado coming through. Oh, shit. It's okay. It just got, it just got wild and windy in New York City, but we'll be okay. So brand sponsor, and endorsement partnerships. We get quite a few emails from brands wanting to work with you because you have very high social engagement numbers. Did you know that? I don't know if that's <laughs> ever something we've talked about. Yeah. 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 No, it's like the same as merch tables. Like, right. you know, people, some people have huge numbers that don't have high engagement. I feel Correct. like, I feel like I actually like vibe with my fans. Like we, we hang out in the comment section. <laughs> Yeah. And so that's really important for people to understand, you know, for two reasons, I think. Um, One, like you just said, it's not always just about following. It's those engagement numbers. And then two, you know, you turn brand, you, you turn down brand stuff, obviously, not obviously, but um, because it's just obvious to me, more often than not is what I'm trying to say. So um, yeah, any thoughts on brands when you work with them, when you don't work with them? I think that there is a balance that you have to have between like the content that you're providing. That's like the art that they want to consume. You know, it's really like a, a risk to expose your fans to like a commercial for something that isn't your art. Right. You have to actually like believe in what you're doing. And if you don't, then, you know, it like, I feel like a lot of what we said in the merch part applies because like if you get just like cash grabby about it you'll lose people's attention because rightfully so they shouldn't be subjected to like half-assed low quality shit (laughs) exactly yes agreed okay um your chapter eight chapter eight is your live strategy and efficient touring um the main thing i want to talk about here is house shows Um, If you can share, you're literally in the book a few times um, and definitely in this chapter talking about house shows. So um, maybe share, you know, share some of your experiences with that and also what you've been up to in the live space during the pandemic, which to me is not to answer the question, but releasing a song and a video every month is a lot of work. But yeah, talk about that. Uh, Yeah, no, I think that um, I think touring is like something that you have to figure out the way that what you need in order to be a successful human being on the road. Like I actually kind of love the way that touring focuses my energy of like, how do I become the most energized person on stage tonight? So like my day is consumed Mm -hmm. by things that will make me feel 
uh, like I could win the night, you know? Yep. Um, and that means like taking really good care of myself, hydrating, eating food, like, uh, it's the kind of thing where you have to fine tune. Like I have weird idiosyncrasies. Like if I eat two hours before the show, I'm like uncomfortably feeling food in my stomach when I'm trying to sing. So I can't, I either have to eat after or like three hours before. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also life hack, uh, gargle with salt water almost every night. And I really feel like that would just clear out any, like once I started doing that, I just would be all the way healthy on tour. I love that. Do you literally just add salt to water? Yeah, just warm water and and I would like buy a, a salt that would have a cap. <laughs> so cool. Um, I don't, I mean, they must exist, but I don't know a great performer that doesn't take care of themselves on the road. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely toured with bands that are cuckoo bananas when it comes to their health, but um, even even those people, I feel like, as we became adults together, because it's been so long, like you just have to, you, you end up whether you wanted to or not becoming more conscious of your health. I totally agree. One other thing I wanted to add about, well, actually, can you share a little bit more about house shows and we can cut this out if you want? Yeah. But like, do you think you'll return to house shows? That's the part we can cut out if you want. Yeah, no, I, I, I am. I'm actually unsure. Yeah. Um, because like a venue has insurance. Right. Um, and there's like less on my shoulders and less mm-hmm. like good faith that's necessary. Like things are being handled for me. Whereas at a house show, like I really was taking a risk every time I went that if like just kind of good faith that nothing would go wrong. Right. Um, and nothing ever did, but, um, like, gosh, I just, if, if I went to a house show and like people, everyone got sick, you know, I just like, couldn't handle that. And, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I I'm actually like the entire idea of touring right now is just like a lofty, like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll address my feelings on that when I, when I've had a little bit more time to recover from this yeah. uh, pretty intense year. Cause um, yeah, right now it just doesn't feel like the move for me. Right. Um, but I do know uh, there's plenty of people going back on tour and more power to them. Not in houses, not in homes necessarily though, which is right. Yeah. Which is what you're getting at. And I think, you know, like we talked about, you just, you need to be smart and you need to be nimble. So maybe artists limit private shows or house shows to a Kickstarter, to a pre-order. And along with that, um, I'm not an attorney, you know, like you you should definitely consult a music attorney about this, but um, have some sort of disclaimer or, or language, right? So um, yeah. And, and so then again, you're you're scaling it down a little bit, you know, you're still creating that intimate experience, right? But maybe you're doing five of them or something as part of a Kickstarter and not a national tour, which you've done before. Right, yeah. I mean, I've been on like 60-day tours <laughs> of all living rooms. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but you obviously play regular venues as well. And we've also done some nice uh, VIP packages for you. Um, so, you know, that's something I want to highlight for people as well. Like, you know, whether it's a sound check party or, um, yeah, I mean, that that's a very viable revenue stream um, for a lot of artists that I don't, that I feel like they don't always take advantage of. Yeah, I, I think that that's really like an interesting place to look if you're trying to maximize what you can make on tour. I, I think that I'm kind of uncommon in a bunch of ways because like I would always make money on tour. Right. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that so many artists just barely break even. Mm -hmm. And that's such a shame. Um, like to, to expend that much energy and, and put yourself through, um, the gauntlet <laughs> not that touring isn't fun but you know it is a lot of tax on the energy um and yeah if you're if you're in that situation and you have some extra energy to do like a vip meet and greet type of sound check party that i would highly recommend that and again like you're so right about energy levels and I'm just throwing the sound check hang idea out there. But again, they're coming to you, right? Like you're going to be there anyway. Don't get me wrong. You need that break. You need that mental space. I tour managed for a long time. I totally understand that. But that's easier than let's go to a yoga class or something together. You know, I mean, right, I don't yeah. know if anyone's ever done that, but I would do that. Yeah, exactly. You, you get the idea. Now, Maybe the, obviously feel free or not to answer any of these questions, but when you say, you know, I made money on tour, was that mostly the house show tours? Um, both, I would say because of the merch, yeah. like, uh, yeah, even, even at a venue show, I would still generally make some money. And I also would have a really, really small band, um, for that reason as well, like, there's different levels of investment you can make. Like I, I know there's kind of this like legendary or maybe just to me article by Jack Conti, um, who's the music producer of Pomplamoose when they went on tour and lost. Yeah. They made like a, a ridiculous amount of money, but when you total all of their expenses, they actually lost like a, a huge amount of money as well. Yep. Um, and that was like really scrutinized by the public. And I think like what Jack just kind of was trying to illustrate was not like their own choices. It was like, this is what happens. Like, I don't know what you people think is going on for your, your favorite bands when they tour through town, but if they have like a five piece band, yeah. if they have, if they have like a tour manager, if they have a bus, if they, if they don't have a bus, like, all of this, like, here's the expenses of being a touring musician. So, um, and then Jack's priority was different from mine. He wanted to put on like the most fantastical show. So he had like high end, really right. pro musicians and, and a sound guy and all of these things that, you know, you, you pay for that. And if I had had those things, I don't think I would have made money on tour either. Yeah. It's a really good point. Um, and 
you know, we, we're going to have three touring episodes coming up. But I think in short, which is exactly what you're saying is, I feel like as you grow, do not add bells and whistles you don't necessarily need, right? Like, so as you get, it's like, if you're growing, then you're doing something right. And it doesn't mean because you're selling more tickets or you're bigger and there's more money. Oh, now I need a tech for every instrument. It's like, well, if you got, you know, if you just had a a monitor person or a backline tech to handle everything before, stick with that, right? And um, I know you're a fan of Ben Folds and you've opened for him before. Um, I remember being in Australia. I I may have told this story on the podcast before, but... um, because he produced Amanda Palmer's solo album. He's he's a fan of hers as well. So we were all we all happened to be on tour and the artists were just talking and Ben said, "Yeah, I remember my business manager handing me two tours for a budget or two budgets for a tour once. I can talk. Um one was with a bus and one was without a bus and there was like a $100,000 difference and I was like, "I'll I'll roll up to Jimmy Fallon on in a van." I mean, it was David Letterman at the time. I'm dating myself. But my point is, is, um, yeah, I think the way, and and I, I just, Melissa and I just talked about this, um, for an artist who was, got offered a tour to open for a big, got offered a tour, got, I really can't talk today. Yeah. Got offered a tour to open for a big artist in Europe. And it was like, okay, how do we, and, and she couldn't afford it. And it was like, how do we cut the expenses and increase the revenue? And I was like, can, you know, we hire some of the band members from the headliners band. Can we do mm. VIP sound check parties? So, um, yeah, we're saying the same thing is like the more you can keep expenses down and also increase revenue, um, the better. I mean, yeah, if, if, yeah, it, it's all a balance because there's mental health stuff going on. You know, it's like not everyone needs their own $500 hotel room, but maybe once in a while it's not six people in a hotel room. <laughs> So yeah. it's a balance. Sleeping on the floor is like a, a young man's sacrifice. Yes. I remember um, there was a young band I was managing a long time ago. And I, I went out for a few shows with them. And they had their, there was maybe like six people on the road or something. They had their sleeping system down to share a hotel. I was like, wow, this is the most like polite like, I, I can't even describe it. It was just like, okay, now this person showers. Like, now this person... But they all had their spots. Like, so... But there's only so long... You could, It's a balance. It's a balance, people. Yeah. But my point is, is if you're having success on the road, um, you don't need to add every bell and whistle. I mean, when I was tour managing, which was a long time ago, a tour bus was $1,000 a day. I'm sure it's more and there's more expensive to, a day. So... Yeah. And people forget that even if you have a tour bus, you need to get hotels every like two days at least for people to shower in. You also need to get a hotel every night for the driver, which is something I uh, learned the hard. I mean, I knew that, but um, the Dresden Dolls were opening for Nine Inch Nails like the month I graduated from college. And I met my tour managing mentor the night before that show. Shout out to Chewy Smith. And he was like, call me anytime you need anything. If it's the middle of the night or like, you know, someone's stressing you out or you just can't figure something out. I had to call him like two days later because, <laughs> again, we're the openers. So we're making 500 bucks a night. We only have a bus so we can keep up with Nine Inch Nails routing. Um, and then what I'm trying to say is one of the. Yeah. So long story short, 
I couldn't find a hotel room for the driver within budget in Vegas. It was really difficult. And then I oh, called yeah. Chewy and this is the magic of knowing tour managers. He's like, oh yeah, I, I have a family friend that like, you know, will charge you 50 bucks for a $200 hotel or something. I'm like, done. I mean, he saved my, saved my butt on that one. So yes, all very important stuff. Okay. So wrapping up, yeah. um, repeating, I mean, we talked about merch, obviously we talked about different revenue streams. Uh, there's, there's a chapter called repeat and grow which I feel like um, you do really well. Um, I don't know. If, I don't know if you have any thoughts on growth in your career. Because hmm. you keep putting music out, right? That's what I mean about repeat and grow. It's like, okay, we've gone through all this stuff. Every time you do it, you get better, hopefully musically and at understanding this stuff. And then, then you start over. Hopefully that's exciting and not depressing. Hopefully it gets easier each time. Maybe not easier creatively, but easier with this other stuff. Totally. Uh, yeah. My thoughts on it are like growing is a completely nonlinear thing. Like you could be doing the same thing again, but like everything is different. The internet is growing at this like crazy pace. Yeah. Um, your fans are evolving. Like there's just, there's so many ways to do it that, uh, you kind of end up experimenting every single time. So the stuff that you can repeat and just do the same way you did it last time, like just, just find those and be grateful for them. Like if you're, if you're working with song trust or, you have a distribution company that is really working for you. Like try to repeat as many things that were working as possible because you're going to be experimenting on like the grandest level anyway. Yes, I agree. Um, okay. Two more questions. I know it's a long one. Our artist interviews are always long ones because we're going through your entire <laughs> career. Um, the final chapter is when do I need an attorney, a business manager, and or a manager defining an artist's traditional team? So any thoughts on, because you actually do have a pretty full team. I think that might surprise people. I mean, you have a booking agent, um, you have a business manager, you work with us. So any thoughts on, and, and something that's interesting about that, I don't know if you've ever heard of Don Passman or his book, All You Need to Know About the Music Business. I've heard of it. I have not read it. Okay. So he was a guest on this podcast and that, that was the book. It, is, it still is the book. I'm not saying it isn't. But before I interviewed him, I was like, I should reread it. And his, and, and his that book was written in probably 1990. I think it came out in 1991. Um, his first chapter is my last chapter. So in the pre-digital era, you needed a team to do all this stuff. And I'm saying you can do all this stuff and then add team members where it makes sense. So any thoughts on any of that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, sometimes having a team can be like a layer of stress that you don't need, mm -hmm. like people waiting on you and, and other people to communicate. Like, if you're not working with anyone, you're not in a bad position. <laughs> you just have a lot, a lot of freedom. And, um, you know, if you blow up and you're like, oh, crap, like I've blown up and I don't know what to do with it because I don't have like all of these people, like 
rest assured, those people will come knocking. Like, (laughs) if you're blowing up, people will reach out to you. And and being discerning um, is really important. Like, I'm so grateful to uh, be working with Emily's company and um, Melissa and just, like, having a level of understanding um, with how, like, what our priorities are. Because I just obviously know a lot of musicians where the priorities don't line up. Right. And there's kind of, a, it's a long game, like you're saying, like thinking about having this go until I'm like old, you know? Yeah. Whereas a lot of managers are like, there's like a timetable and a pressure and uh, something that that I think is really important is just like being able to communicate with your team, no matter who it is. Mm-hmm. And if I was going to tell you to, to find like the first member of your team, um, I would say a collaborator, yeah, like just someone that can talk you through places where you might get stuck, like on strategy and stuff like that. Just like anybody else who understands what you're doing, who either is going to be a part of your project or just like, a sounding board who's not necessarily a part of the project and um, have that be someone that you really, really vibe with. And from there, like don't sign anything without having a professional check on it. That's, you know, you could lose your masters and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. We already discussed Uh, your manager should be someone who like, really gets your long-term goals not just the short-term like success thing it's it's really about like what you want in the long run yeah you know something that was really interesting to me that you said once and maybe this is helpful for managers and industry people that are listening is um you said that I'm sure I'm botching this but I think it'll get across (laughs) Um, you never, you never felt pressure from us to say yes to stuff. Like it, it was okay to say no. And I think you had felt that pressure, um, from some industry folks prior. So I, I think, and, and again, I'm not trying to be like, oh, we're so great. It's just, to me, that's just such a no brainer. Cause again, it's just like, we want you doing this forever. So who cares? And also like, you are not the type of artist, talent, client, whatever, that like turns a lot of stuff down. You know what I mean? So even to hear, I'm not saying like you do everything all the time, but like there are a lot of artists that just cancel stuff all the time, turns, you know, you're not like that. So to hear you say that is just like a huge, I think a huge reminder for people, like we want Julia making music forever, not burning out by the time you're 40. Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of artists, the burnout can happen way sooner than that. Like if you make it to 40. My mom says this thing that I think is really like astute about the music industry is like the older you are, the more impressive it is that you're a musician. Interesting. (laughs) Being young and going for it is, you know, like, you're young risk risk it all follow your dream but if you still have that energy um in your 30s and 40s and 50s like 
that really must mean you've, you've like found a pacing that works for you, a team that works for you, an approach, like all of this, this repeat and grow you're saying, like you build your winning formula and you've clearly got it pretty dialed in if you make it to 40, 50. You know. Mick Jagger. Yeah. What's he like 80? But I mean, he's a, he's a legend. Like I think for, I think that's what I'm saying is like, He's, he's of the few, right? Yeah. Like not, not very many people make it to that age. And I think that it's, it's actually going to be a function of my generation to be someone who's not a legend, yeah, but still old and making music. <laughs> but to make credit, I mean, you're right. He's a legend. So it's easy to be like, well, yeah, of course. But, um, you know, that's a band that is, was known for partying. Right. But like, I like my entire life I've always heard about like when I was a kid and stuff like Mick and again not everyone everyone can afford this but Mick would travel with like his own gym on tour you know what I mean there's a reason why he's in I just looked he's 77 there's a reason why he's in his late 70s and can dance and tour and do all this stuff no matter like how first class it is you know like it's still traveling it's still a grind oh yeah I mean, I think, I think people really like, I, I don't want to like emphasize this too, too much, but like, I don't think people really understand how intense touring is. And I don't, yeah. I say that as someone who loves touring, like I, I have no complaints and I choose to do it and it's actually like the best. And like, um, <laughs> if, if you don't take care of yourself, you're in for like a world of hurt yeah. and, and potentially just at the end of a tour when all of the adrenaline runs out, you get home and you're like, Christ. Yep. But like, it's, it's just gotta be sustainable. Um, otherwise there's that burnout that you're saying. And, and like, yeah, it doesn't take that long to accumulate. It can happen literally over the course of a one month tour. I have, I know I have a journal entry somewhere from the end of my tour managing days where I just say over and over, I just want to be alone. I just want to be alone. Because <laughs> there's, some, you know, I'm on a tour bus. There's someone sleeping above me. There's someone sleeping next to me. It's just like, and I love these people. They are family. But um, yeah, it, it's, I, 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 those are some of the best years of my life. I'm not complaining, but it is hard. Yeah, for sure. Okay. One last question. What does building a sustainable music career mean to you? Yeah, uh, I would just like take everything we've said over the course of this call and, and put it all together, like finding your team, finding a comfortable relationship with the idea of making money and, and marketing yourself and creating products and experiences that people can buy, whether that be like a shirt or like a pre-show meetup. Um, like making enough money that you can make the kind of art you want to make. And until then making art under the constraints you have and being playful and creative about it. Um, being willing to, to like start again, mm -hmm. I think is a huge deal. That's how I found living room shows. Um, being willing to put yourself out there knowing that, Criticism is almost guaranteed. Uh, and 
just slowly collecting the the people to work with and the methods that work for you and and uh support you in the ways that you need to to do this long term i love it incredible um oh we didn't talk about patreon and melissa told us to mention that any sorry so that wasn't the last question any thoughts on patreon which you are definitely excellent at well of course i can just say so much about patreon i think (laughs) You know, it, it got me through a pandemic. That it got me through a period of my life where I was really, really depressed. Um, and I think that that's where, like, the, the people who want to pay just to support you, that's where they can be found the most. Because um, it's it's really a place where the type of person who's willing to like give you monthly income, yeah. Um, there's really nothing you can give somebody that's worth that level of consistency. Like that, that's just like heart based. Yep. <laughs> um, and then I do my best to provide something that could, could come close to being worth it. Um, and kind of related to merch, which I think is the main topic of this podcast is that when I do my custom merch drops, like I'll, I'll tie dye and bleach and mess around with some, a small batch of hoodies. Um, and I'll let Patreon know about that before the rest of the internet. And usually by the time I, I make it public to everybody, Patreon has scooped up everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's it's just like the place for the people that are truly like invested um emotionally monetarily like invested in you as an artist and and you continuing to be able to make art and um that's that's emotional for me I mean I think uh there have been times where like I just really didn't deserve that level of support I wasn't fulfilling the way that you could like really see the reciprocity, the exchange um, and people still stuck around. And um, yeah, I've been on that website for eight years. Wow. <laughs> I love it. Um, I Well, I want to ask where people can find you, but also um, I know you lead retreats. And, and do a lot of incredible, important work in the wellness space. So anything you want to share? Where can people find you? Do you have any retreats coming up? How, how can we better ourselves via Julia? Yeah, wow. Um, you know, I would say the best place to find me is on Instagram. And I do talk about the coaching that I do sometimes over there. Pretty rarely because my, my schedule is full up. Um, I have a sold-out retreat coming in August. And... Um, yeah, I, I got into coaching actually while I was quite sad mm. <laughs> um, and looking for like something to help me and like getting coached was the first step. I was like, oh, wow, this like methodology is really helpful. And then um, I took a class on it and realized that I find myself doing similar stuff while I'm uh, writing songs or on stage of just kind of like processing feelings um, 
in a non-judgmental way, just kind of looking at them for what they are and um, figuring out what's next from there. Um, that's like kind of the basis of what I do with my clients. And um, the two biggest tenants are connection, like connection to yourself and people and how we really need that. Like it's a, a required nutrient for all of us to be connected to ourselves and to, and to also connect with people from that place, like not from a phony place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then desire, which is like at the foundation of all art and, um, and marketing and merch, like desire runs the show in ways that lots of us aren't even aware of. So I, I like to coach people to get kind of more clear on what, what desires are coming forward and which ones of them are conscious, which ones are kind of more in the shadows and um, just forming a relationship with that part of us that really steers our lives um, sometimes in ways we don't like. <laughs> yes. So important. Um, yeah. So I'll, yeah, I think Instagram is the best place to, to find my music and my coaching stuff. I'll be expanding ever more. And Instagram is a great place for where I announce those expansions. And you are Julia Noon's music on Instagram or Ju- yes. Yes. Okay, cool. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Julia. This was so fun. I'm so glad we got to do this. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you always. Yes, same. So that's a wrap for this episode of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. Tune in next week uh, for the Revenue Stream Checklist episode with artist and activist Steph Reed. Catch you then. And huge shout out to Matthew Wong for composing this podcast music. And of course, to my wonderful engineer, Nathan Kane. Thank you again.